All right. Let's figure this out. Okay. All, All right. right. Hold on, Mr. Seekosh. All right. This is the uh, the Pilot Blues. Okay. I just have to take the uh, name of our show. Don't take our word for it with Peter Seekosh and Chris Graves. And I have to take that off of our faces. Uh, it should be a whole thing. <laughs> And we're live, buddy. so all right, here we go. We're just uh, new kids on the block there, folks. Okay, here we go. All right, does that do? Okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Oh. I see this uh, This show is still uh, still got its sea legs. We're still working things out here. <laughs> yeah, all right. I am. I like uh, it. You are? I'm Peter Sikosh. Oh, finally. I've been getting all, <laughs> finally, I, all the mail that I've been getting. Oh, I've been running out of stamps. Here he is, folks. Tell everyone. Welcome, everyone. To, yeah, what's, uh, our show? what's the show called? It's called uh, Don't Take Our Word For It. The, uh, the the show formerly known as the Chris and Peter Show. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Or what originally it was <clears throat> comics and conspiracies with Peter and Chris. Oh, and yeah. Like, I guess it's our third episode then. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway. Yeah. Really? What do you think? Carry the dot, dot the T. All right, anyway, so tell everyone about yourself, your background, and then I'll bore them with, you know, my my thing. Not that you're going to bore them. I am sorry, folks. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a, a while, so I'm a little nervous, and he is a pro. So, Mr. Sikosh, take it away. Great. Well, I do uh, I do a number of things. I, I The thing that's most relevant to this show is uh, I – do research for uh, for Donald Jeffries, similar to Chris, and uh, we both worked on uh, Hidden History three, and we both did research for uh, Don's upcoming uh, uh, what is it? His COVID book, his masking, masking the truth. masking the truth is the tentative title, and we also played a, a little part in uh, on Borrowed Fame a little bit. You definitely you did what? You oh, were, I did the cover. I did the cover. You did the cover. Because you are a very talented artist as well as researcher and editor and everything else that I can't do. What, Thank you. Um, and you're welcome. What is your trade, my friend? Um, well, I, I, well, my main trade is I fix Victorians in San Francisco, but uh, my, my side trade and the, you know, kind of my, my dream job is comic book stuff. You yeah, know, you're not giving out autographs for uh, for doing construction, I don't think. Uh, yeah. No, hell no. <laughs> right. I, I go to I go to comic book conventions all throughout the United States. Uh, the He's next one I go, folks, he really does. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> you know, I sell prints, uh, sell uh, you know comic book art, uh, sell comics that I've worked on. Um, what are the folks about some of the the comics that you have worked on? Let's see. I've worked on. Uh, I did. I worked on Elvira back in the day uh, with my friend John Hebink. I didn't uh, even know that. I didn't even know that, dude. You didn't know I worked on Elvira? Yeah. No. Uh, oh well, we'll talk about it after. But yeah, you know, keep going. Yeah, sure. Oh, you, I worked on right. Elvira. I worked awesome. on a book called. Uh, it's called Doll and Creature. It was published by Image. It okay. was. Uh, it was done with uh, uh, John Hebink and. A guy named uh, Mike Manley uh, with uh, a guy named Rick Remender. Um, anybody who's in comics would know who those people are. Uh, Rick Remender later went on to do, I think, Uncanny X Force. Um, 
Little Let's X-Men see. X-Men spinoff, yeah. Yep. Deadpool was a part of uh, that, too, or am I just screwing that up with uh, X-Force in general? He appeared in, I think, yeah. X-Force 2 or 3 originally okay. under Rob Liefeld. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Rob Liefeld, I think he called me an idiot once on Twitter. Um, no way. Go on. Yeah, go on, though. I am. I can be. That's Those funny. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, it's okay. Uh, he wasn't. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so you uh, you're a comic book artist, basically for the layman, right? Like myself. yeah. And uh, you're working on a new book. Are you allowed to give any details on that? And, uh, uh, it's called Ghost Band. It's a post-apocalyptic book about these uh, these. Get, there's like a, a a tech virus going around, and everyone's got it. Uh, the city's coming apart. A uh, post-apocalyptic comic that has a virus in it. Yeah. All right. well, I will go. I will go. No, and then the, these guys put on a uh, they they put on a a concert in the park at the end. And there's lots of lots of stuff in San Francisco, buildings collapsing, uh, things coming down. It's been a wow. it's been a really fun book to work on. Well, that sounds like it, yeah. Especially uh, yeah, I, I can draw stick figures that are uh, you know eating pudding or something. But um, but what? Okay, it's both of our show here, folks. So uh, I do, I don't mean to take over hosting duties here, but. What else uh, would you, like, what got you into uh, the research that we both find ourselves to be in? Um, well, basically, I've always been a history guy. Um, yeah. What's your favorite I've, era Era of history? Favorite era, probably 20th century. But I tend to really gravitate toward, you know, stuff from like 1900 to 1950. Yeah. Um, and then stuff from kind of like the late 1800s. I don't, I don't know why I like that era so much. Um, if you, when you end up picking up, uh, well, you know, you've read it when you, when you get to reading, this is for the audience out there. When you get to reading hidden history three, I did most of the stuff, uh, the research for stuff leading right up to the JFK stuff in the book. He's not um, kidding. He, he, is the, he, he does the legwork. He literally goes to libraries. He writes research papers. This guy is a pro. Oh my I, God! It's made a shame, <laughs> Chris. I you, you wouldn't believe this, but I actually uh, not not to toot my own horn, but like since That's I started true. research on Don's book back in like 2021, yeah. I, I I just been keeping track of all the pages I'd read, and it came to like five thousand something. Oh my God! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have me beat by uh, four thousand eight hundred? <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, yeah, no. But so, what, in your opinion, is history, and what is hidden history, and why is it important for people to differentiate and know the difference? Basically, well, that's a that's a good question. Um, so, I'm trying to think of how the best way to explain this. So, not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's our show. That's um, right. But yeah. but history is like. You know, you find it. You find it in in textbooks, and it's basically the the standard narrative. It's the written by the victors, right? I, I'd say for the most part, yeah. I'd say yeah. for the most part, yeah. But it's it's generally it's kind of watered down to uh, symptoms and outcomes. And you know, if you if you end up picking like up a, a standard high school history text, like I, I was, I think I was explaining this to you yesterday. Like I was reading a. A book on what the causes of the Great Depression. You end up reading a, a standard college history book on like 
I have a, I think it's America in the 20th century. You read it and they tell you like all these different symptoms of the depression, but they don't really tell you why, what was going on was going on. Like why did the depression occur? Maybe and maybe this is a maybe subject for another show, but no, um, this is fascinating. Like maybe something conspiracy. If, if you end up reading like a standard history text, you get a bunch of disjointed events occurring over yeah. like a span of time right. um, that, for the most part, don't appear connected. Right. Hidden history is kind of digging in and seeing how those re- those events relate and yeah, seeing connected. the connections between them. Yeah. Seeing um, kind of a causal element that's uh, missing from most history texts. Um, what does that mean for the layman? Because I'm actually at a loss right now. What, what was the term you just said? Not to slow us uh, down. Causal, like showing a, showing the like what caused something or what <laughs> what resulted in all these outcomes or what what series of events resulted cause and, in cause and effect. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. What what resulted in the the current situation we're in? Yeah, because like so, those who who don't, they they tell us that those who don't learn from history are doomed or destined or doomed to repeat it, right? Right. Or what was the? There's the Mark Twain one. History doesn't uh, it it doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's important that usually, in my case, when I I look at it, usually hidden history like the works of our good friend Donald Jeffries, or even something like the people's history of the United States. They usually tell us a totally, read different, totally different story than what is taught in classrooms. And it's kind of important to kind of get that other perspective that maybe what you're being taught uh, officially, maybe there's another angle here and maybe it's it could even be the real angle like the real thing and not what we're being taught because what I found out it found fascinating is that a figure like Abraham Lincoln was not quite the saint that our mainstream history books paint him to be and then you have a figure like Joseph McCarthy who is like a demon in mainstream history and that wasn't quite the case either right that's correct that's correct um, yeah, I, I got into I got in got into some McCarthy stuff for uh, Don's upcoming book. Um, I draw heavily upon the works of uh, Joseph Farrell. He uh, yeah. recently came out with two books that that anyway I, I highly recommend it if you can get your hands on them. Well, um, but, work on getting Mr. Farrell for this. Oh time. yeah, yeah, we have to get him on our show. Yeah, no, that was cool. But, some of the other things that I wasn't aware that Mr. Farrell's into. I won't spoil it, but it, it got me even more excited. Not that I wasn't already, but like he goes into other areas that I was not expecting. So I'm looking forward to making that happen. So anyway, Sounds yeah. Good. So so basically, we're being lied to most of the time, right? We're, our conditioning as our children or ourselves back in the day. Yeah, the 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 kind of simplistic narrative that you get in most history books is not. Typically, it's not it's not history. It's right. not <clears throat> like you know, like oh well. Um, what so? It's a good example, like uh, like you know, like like people talk people talk about major events and try to like distill them down to these these really uh, simple simplified versions of themselves. 
I'll give, you um, one, when, I'll give you a perfect example of that, right? That you just sparked uh, that it's perfect propaganda, right? Yeah. A 9-11 final report, final commission report, they literally put out a comic book slash coloring book for kids. And it was the official story that is almost impossible if you really, really look at it now, you know, and keep an open mind. Like the official conspiracy theory, because that's all that was as well. And it's the it's almost on par with holograms, in my opinion. But yeah, it basically a modern version of that was literally to indoct indoctrinate or uh, children like with this fairy tale. Like, and that's 9-11 something that I've been researching for a very long time. But in terms of our history books, what would be one of the things that kind of stuck out to you? Well, you know, it'd be like, it. I mean, it, it could even be like more basic. I don't, I think history is probably one of the subjects that people know the least of. And, yeah. and if you ever read, uh, there's a book called uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, but he, he talks about how um, history is the, the one topic where uh, teachers in, in universities have to reteach it from, from the start, basically, when people like leave high school. So, you know, and, and that isn't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, you know, all university history is perfect or whatever. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm trying to prove a point that, like, for example, when people take math and they learn math in school and they go to university, the university professor doesn't have to reteach all the basic math. Right. You know, it's like, it's like someone saying, uh, you know, if you ask most people about history, they'll say like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it was World War II was it was Roosevelt telling Hitler, uh, you know, stop killing the Jewish people and Hitler then saying no. And so then they went to war or, you know, just just something super what basic. They like leave that. Out is that FDR most likely knew the attack was going to was coming and let it happen on purpose. Right. Is that well, when when you dig into like like when you dig into something like World War Two, the, the events leading up to World War Two. Um, this, and I, 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 I actually draw upon a book called, uh, called human smoke where, um, you know, and other people have written books, like entire, like books on this whole subject. But yeah. like, if you want to get into like, you know, Roosevelt and Jewish people in world war two, um, yeah. Roosevelt like blocked all sorts of legislation on sending like refugees to the United States, like just Ooh. wouldn't let them in. I didn't know that. Actually. Yeah. So it's like most of the narratives that people have of like, you know, history doesn't end up being like good guys versus bad guys, but it, a lot of gray. Yeah. There's a lot of gray there. Like yeah. um, obviously some people like end up being way worse than others. Yeah. But a lot of good guys do a lot of bad and a lot of bad guys sometimes do a little good. So, but kind of like the Lincoln McCarthy kind of thing. Well, I mean, I've heard that, Lincoln was a flat-out tyrant, so I don't know how good he was, but he still gets credited for freeing the slaves, which I don't think was his... Uh, that wasn't his uh, purpose, right? That wasn't his... Um, help me out. He, basically, it was, that wasn't his main objective, but he ended up uh, having that, right, as his legacy, right? I mean, that, that ended up being also, like, the, the result of the war, um, right. but that wasn't the... That wasn't necessarily the... And I know somebody's going to gonna no, uh, comment on this yeah, but um uh, everyone's entitled to their opinion that was that I, I was not the that was not the initial motivation of, the of states rights lincoln yeah. right 
So um, just the point being that most people have like these, these just broad, simple ideas of why these major events happen. It's just kind of what we're getting at. Um, instead of, so usually what I do is I'll read like the, the main narrative of a book, you know, like the high school text. And then yeah. sometimes I'll read like the, like the leftist book based on it. And then I'll read like conservative version. Wow, and then sometimes I'll read, the, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. you know, so you're kind of, um, you're kind That's of getting great. all different views and like seeing yeah. how, yeah, and see how they correlate, and that you get a bigger, a better picture. Like uh, the puzzle pieces are kind of go into place. Then my thing is, I think it's important what you just said is that people need to know what the official narrative is with a lot of these, with all of these events, before they can understand the conspiratorial or possibly the real version of the event. Because if they don't even know what they're being lied to about in the first place. How do you expect them to even care about the, the, you know, the other, the hidden version of it? You know, if they don't even know what the official lie is first, right? Sure. Well, anyway. Sure. Anyway, you know what? Your specialty, and it's awesome, is the history, like you said. Like, you can research, like, anything, dude. Like, you're, I look up to you, man. Your thing, Thanks, man. But you have a specialty, though, when it comes to history you know and you have an interest and i have an interest as well but i i i tend to gravitate towards the 20th century just for some reason just maybe just because i can relate to it a little bit more than like the horse and carriage the horse and buggy thing but i i like to know all the history that i can get my hands on at least uh you know the, i say history but i don't mean mainstream history but you know what i mean like the hidden gems that we weren't told about or taught, you know, taught at all, like the business plot of nineteen, the nineteen forties. Business you know? plot. The uh, what was it? The nineteen thirty four assassination attempt on Roosevelt. There's that. Um, some of the stuff that that people consider hidden history is not. I mean, it's not. It's not even conspiracy. Like you can find it in Maine. But like they don't, it's just it's just it's digging hard, through like enough hard. history books to find it. Like that's right. Um, so it might as well be hidden because it's very hard to find because they they just sometimes they don't even need to put any effort into burying these stories because unfortunately people today they just they have too much going on to really to dig like like you or I and you are a busy motherfucker you know we yeah. we are uncensored here so don't worry it's not like the get mad thing where we were on radio you are a fucking I don't know how you do it but it's awesome anyway folks. <laughs> he specializes in uh, history that I can't really, you know, I have uh, OCD, I have things like that, but it's, he's able to zero in on like the 1700s, the 1800s, and that kind of is what brings us to today's topic, which I can really get into for some reason, because I'm a sick fuck, I guess, I don't know. Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Okay, that's awesome. Damn. So, Chris, do you know how many letters were sent to the uh, when the Ripper murders were going on in 1888? Do you know how many letters were sent to the police at the time? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm not going to bullshit anyone. I think you told me three. I thought there was a few more than that, but I guess. Uh, overall, there were about a thousand. OK, so I yeah. was uh, pretty shy of. Uh, OK, 
like were, like uh, like a lot of these cases, like Zodiac, uh, people gravitate in and then end up writing a bunch of like you have imitations, you have uh, copycats, yeah, yeah, you have copycats. People just trying to get attention, unfortunately, <laughs> and so we don't we don't one hundred percent know uh, if all the letters were written by Jack the Ripper. Uh, some have been proven to be like total, you know, hoaxes. Right. But there are three main ones that. And just not to cut you off one, one more time, but I'm a uh, I'm a fan of Dave McGowan's work, right? Yeah. And with Program to Kill, his one of his earlier books, he was able to kind of make the connection with a lot of our modern day serial killers, a connection in which they weren't so lone wolf ish like they appear to be in the official narrative and usually <clears throat> you find out especially with maury terry his work that sometimes these serial killers they are part of a bigger picture right um like let's let's say the son of sam cult that there actually was a task force in new york uh for after Berko david berkowitz uh, let it be known that you know he didn't wasn't taking orders from the neighbor's dog, Sam, or whatever. And uh, it was more of an insanity plea, so he wouldn't get the uh, death penalty, I believe. But he admitted that he was in a satanic cult that actually was responsible for most of the murders and that he did participate, but it was a part of a bigger picture. And you get that circumstantial evidence with Ted Bundy. You get it with John Wayne Gacy, even Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Then, of course, you got Charlie, Charlie's family, you know, back then. Is there any evidence that you came across that might point to the idea, because I just thought of this now, that maybe it wasn't just one person that was. There's good evidence that it was uh, a particular individual plus his assistant. Okay. And I was about to get into that actually in the article. I mean, I will not. Cut you off again, sir. I just had. Oh to... no, no! It's 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 a valid question. I uh, actually want your input. Cool, cool, cool. All right. So right now, uh, the you got three, right? That's where I got. So there's there's three main Ripper uh, letters that were sent the, to the from the, the police. The, the from hell letters, right? They're known as that. Comment? There's one of them is called is called the Dear Boss Letter. Another one is called the Saucy Jack Postcard, and the other one is the From Hell Letter. Okay. The From Hell Letter is the uh, the first two that I mentioned are the ones that uh, they get lots of like you know different people coming along crediting like oh yeah well they showed up in the 1930s or 20s saying like oh yeah well I wrote I wrote those. Yeah. Now the From Hell Letter is probably the most legitimate of the three. And this is kind of what it looks like. Oh, if you want to take, take my glasses off, right? The, I just yeah. saw like glare on the screen here. Okay. Uh, so what you end up what you end up seeing with the Jack the Ripper letters is there's a lot of um, like misspellings of things and a lot of things, but there's also at the same time there's a certain like rhythm and cadence to the uh, the the way that the letters are written, so that they kind of have the appearance of an educated person trying to misspell things to right. appear like oh, he's just some yeah oh. yeah it's it's pretty weird so this is this is the from hell letter it says it says one second the from hell letter says also a decent movie by the way yes but this is where the title comes from that's what i figured yeah 
from hell. This is the uh, this is the where it's where it's addressed from. Mr. Lusk. Mr. Lusk is the head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee uh, in 1888. So during the time of uh, Jack the Ripper, not only were the police looking for him, but individual citizens started like gathering together late at night looking for Jack the Ripper. Vigilance so the head, right, the head of that was named Mr. Lusk. So he writes. I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate it was very nice. May send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. So, wow. and this, this letter, the thing that makes it kind of interesting is the, the letter was actually uh, accompanied by a like a, a part of kidney, like a section of kidney. It was preserved in alcohol and uh, was later confirmed by a doctor to be that of a human females. Um, members of the medical field believed the kidney and the accompanying message to be a practical joke played by medical students who obtained the organ from a cadaver. Later, Dr. Thomas Openshaw, the physician who examined the, the kidney, concluded that it had come from a woman about 45 years of age who also suffered from Bright's disease. This disease is a failing of the kidneys as a result of he heavy drinking. Wow. Catherine Eddowes was 46 at the time of her murder and was known to drink quite heavily. So, so there, there is a lot of uh, possible legitimacy there. Wow. So is that like kind of like, like a cirrhosis of the liver type, like a, another one of those kind of liver diseases? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> just, just making sure. I mean, but, you know, it's the kidneys. So. Right. Um, oh, I said. Oh. No, it, it's okay, dude. All I right. So uh, what are we going to do in this episode, Chris? Well, I think uh, we're going to take uh, an awesome piece of writing. And uh, to be fair, I read sections of this and. I put it off when I realized that we were going to cover this, right? And it's by our good friend that we mentioned before, Mr. Donald Jeffries, for the periodical. This is the periodical, if anyone wants to know. It's actually Deep Truth Journal. It's uh, volume one, number two. I think this is S.T. Patrick's magazine, okay. if anyone's... Okay, so is that? Do you know for uh, whether or not um, that's still available to purchase? Them? Uh, I I think you have to get order it right off the website. Okay, all right. So that's St. Patrick <clears throat> of Mid Midnight Writer News. Uh, check that out. And this was an article that Mr. Donald Jeffries wrote about Jack the Ripper for exclusively for this magazine. Take yeah, I think most people associate Don with JFK and his hidden history books. And he never talks he, about Jack the Ripper. Though. He never talks about Jack the Ripper. So we're gonna we're gonna read something that I don't think a lot of people have read before. So oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I have to say, I hate to admit it because uh, I feel like I'm a Donald Jeffries uh, purist. <laughs> I unfortunately didn't I didn't uh, I didn't read the whole thing yet. So I'm going to enjoy this. Take it. All right. So. Just for the audience, what we're going to do is I'm going to be reading, and every once in a while we're going to stop. I'm just going to clarify a term or two, or uh, Chris yeah, is going to pipe in, and then we're going to we're going to chat about it. Awesome! This is great. All right. Okay. So this article is called Eddie the Ripper, and 
This starts with a quote attributed to Jack the Ripper, which is, one day men will look back and say, I gave birth to the 20th century. What do you think, what do you think he meant by that? Just that it would be that vi like it would be the century of serial killers or I don't know. I don't know. I'm inclined to connect it to your comment on uh, Dave McGowan, but I, I, I don't know for sure. Very intriguing. intriguing. Yeah, it does get one thinking, though. Yeah. All right. Here we go. England's greatest mystery has intrigued the entire world for well over a century. 1888 was a sadly memorable year in the East End of London. Someone referring to himself or herself as Jack the Ripper in a mocking series of letters to the police literally butchered a number of pitiful prostitutes. Actually, there's no proof the real murderer wrote any of the letters, and the macabre but colorful name may have been the invention of a creative, albeit misguided citizen. Hmm. As in seemingly every celebrated criminal case, the authorities of that time and place conducted an inept investigation and left the crimes unsolved. Wow. Yeah. The Ripper's first victim. Does that, that? I, just one thing, does that remind you of anything, uh, you know, in modern times? Police procedure? Usually in these high profile, uh, you know, cases that we have a lot of questions about. And uh, sorry. <laughs> Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Um, uh, the Ripper's first victim. I apologize, folks. No, it, don't. That's what we, we told the audience we we're going to do. I'm going to do the Chris Farrar thing. Stupid, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, you're good. You're, you're good. I'm going to read. Okay, so what I'll, I'll what we'll do is uh, we, we kind of talked about this right before, but what, what we'll do is I'll let you read, and then we'll talk about it, right? Because I was going... I got it mistaken. I crossed the wires are all crossed. So I thought like after we would talk in between, but we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll sit, let it all sink in. Chris, you're good. You're doing good, man. <laughs> Thank you. I try. <laughs> all right. The Ripper's first victim may have been one Emma Elizabeth Smith. Smith was a prostitute who was seen talking to a man in dark clothes. Okay. One second. Yep and a white scarf for some hours before she staggered into her lodging house in Spitzfields on April 2nd, 1888. She claimed to have been attacked by four men, but was in no condition to, or was just not able to accurately describe them. Something, not a knife, had been savagely inserted into her vagina and had been broken off. The next day, she died of peritonitis. So that's like a that's like an infection. I believe that's an infection of the lining on the inside of like, a, you know, like the membrane. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a fun time. Yeah. No, it's, it's, so the East End of London was, uh, in, in spite of Jack the Ripper, or in addition to Jack the Ripper, was just kind of a, uh, uh, tended to be a very violent place, you know, Victorian London. Um, Why do you think that was? Just, just the culture or? Um. I'm sure it was like the the overcrowding. It was probably oh, um, you know the slums, the yeah. the factories everywhere. Um, I'm sure it was like more than one factor. Okay. Um, Tension in general. Yeah. Yeah. So Smith, this is the this is the woman who had been attacked. Yeah. Had been curiously reluctant to go to the hospital or report the assault to the police. Most ripperologists don't accept that Smith was killed by Jack the Ripper, but since her murder bears a resemblance to the others. 
And in light of the fact most official explanations for everything seems purposefully in error, there is little reason to automatically discount the idea she may indeed have been the first victim. <clears throat> Another victim, a part-time sex worker named Martha Tabram, was killed on August 7th, 1888 in a similar fashion, though she did not survive the attack. She was found with her clothing pulled up to her midsection, exposing her private parts. Whoa. Mary Pollyann Nichols is generally considered to be the first bona fide victim of Jack the Ripper. The most mystifying part of her murder was the fact that it had evidently been committed in a location where several persons should have heard at least a scream or some sound of struggle. The spot where her body was found was almost directly under the windows of one Mrs. Green, who was a light sleeper and was just opposite of Mrs. Perkis, who was awake during the time the murder was supposedly committed. In addition to the policemen walking the beat, which they did regularly there, were three watchmen close by. These are just people who, you know, patrolmen. Right, right. Um, none of these witnesses reported hearing anything, which implies that the victim must either have known or trusted the killer or that she was choked to unconsciousness before she could scream out. According to Dr. Wynn E. Baxter's findings, two things were missing from the second official victim of the Ripper. Her rings, her rings, I think, and her uterus. Dark Annie Chapman had been, vigor had been viciously slaughtered, even disemboweled on September 8th, 1888, and Dr. Baxter was of the opinion that the killer possessed considerable anatomical knowledge. This is a, a kind of a, a theme you see through all the, the, the Ripper theories. Yeah, that he possibly was a surgeon or even a, a woman at one point, a nurse, I had heard, too. A nurse or a, a, a veterinarian or like a, yeah. a butcher of some kind. Or even a, a member of the royal family, which I put a lot of stock into, actually. More on that later. Yeah. Judging by the cuts on the body, an unskilled person could not have performed the crime. Not even someone related to the medical field in a cursory way, such as an animal slaughterer. It seemed logical to suppose that the killer, for some reason, had murdered the poor prostitute in order to obtain her missing body organ. The third victim, who was the first of two left in the wake of the Ripper's notorious September 30th, 1888 double event, was Elizabeth Long Liz Stride. The killer had apparently been interrupted during... Next page. Page three. Oh, the so killer had been interrupted during his gruesome work as she was spared the extensive mutilations of the others. So this is the night where the Ripper commits two murders in a row. The first one, uh, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't carry out the mutilation to the extent that you see in the other ones. Because he um, had to get the hell out of there, right? Right. Yeah. We don't know why. Or, or <clears throat> maybe it was two people. It's possible. Wow. Later that same morning, another body was found in Meter Square, the only one of the Ripper's victims to be killed in the city of London proper. So city of London, just for anyone wondering, is it's the original medieval uh, city of London, yeah. as opposed to what's been built around it recently, yeah, you know, in, in more, more modern times. Yeah, uh, city of London is also in, in kind of the conspiracy world is considered to be the financial center of the world. You know, where you have like the, the, the Bank of England and uh, these large uh, financial bodies. And the royal so, blood, bloodline and all that. It, yeah. yeah, yeah, if you're getting into that. So yeah. that, that's what that's all about. 
So yeah, Yale stems from from um, England too, right? Right. There's there's a lot of uh, uh, Anglophile type um, type. Uh, uh, like there was like this huge this huge movement Maybe. where there was this Maybe. huge affinity for. Yeah, yeah. But they lived in America, but they seem to have uh, under the surface. It, they gave off the impression that maybe they weren't so loyal to America as they were to uh, England, possibly. Right. You see this in guys like J.P. Morgan at the turn of the century. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. Let me get back here. So so this was the only one of the Ripper's victims to be killed in the city of London. Um, Proper. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. How this particular killing could have been accomplished was truly unfathomable, as the square where the body was discovered was patrolled regularly every 15 minutes by a police constable. A constable is just like a policeman. Yep. At 1.30 a.m., he had found the square empty, and at 1.45 a.m., the body of Catherine Eddowes was discovered lying there. So it's 15 minutes. Wow. The mutilations were the most grotesque and intricate yet, so it is difficult to accept that anyone other then a man familiar with surgery or dissection could have made them in such a short period of time. Or maybe considering even a hunter what's, too, maybe. What's that? Maybe even a hunter too, but I guess they wouldn't be as like it wouldn't be as close. Um, that was a dumb thought. Sorry, sorry. No, it, it it is one of the theories out there. Oh, it, it is, is one of the theories out there. Okay. Um, because you have to dress like, uh, you know, when I say dress, it means you have, literally have to skin like the the deer or whatever animal it is, and they 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 call it dressing, right? Um, for the meat and everything. Um, yeah, so you know, it's interesting. Um, sorry. <laughs> oh, it's it's okay. It's okay. Um, yeah, there is there is that does fit into some of the theories. Um, but a doctor surgeon would make the most sense because it seems like it was precision and things like, you know, pretty right. The, the, the body appeared in 15 minutes. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, considering that these back alleyways were pitch black at night and escaped unnoticed about a third of a mile from the scene of the Edo's murder, a piece of the blood stained apron that was left hanging about the victim's neck, which had been cut away by the killer was found in a passageway. The policeman who discovered it also found something else, which was quite a bit more interesting. A message had been scrawled in a good schoolboy hand. So this just gets into more of like how the, these letters are being deliberately written in a wrong way. Right. So according to one witness across the black dado of the wall there, a dado is like, um, if you ever look in a Victorian house, you have the trim in the middle of the wall, and then you have like a different type of wall at the bottom of it. It's just oh. kind of a little bit more intricate. So you, you see this on buildings. Right. It right. just means a lower part of a building that's a little bit more decorative. So according to one witness across the black data of the wall there, it read either, the accounts are a bit confusing, the Jews are the men that are not to be blamed for nothing, or the Jews are not the men that will be blamed for nothing. However, the message was worded and exactly which words were capitalized. It was an intriguing piece of evidence, if only for the nice sample of handwriting it presented to the authorities. Those authorities, and more precisely Sir Charles Warren, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, did not preserve or even photograph this vital clue, however. Sir Charles is said to have erased the message himself over the objections of many of the officers there. 
supposedly because he feared an uprising against the local Jews. <clears throat> there were uh, Jewish communities in the East End of London, and you sometimes find different theories, like some people go with the royal theory, some people will say it was like a, a Polish Jewish immigrant. Uh, so, a lot of anti uh, anti Semitism, like uh, with that theory. Yeah. So, but the, the point is that the the writing on the wall is either there as like a diversion, or it's accurate. I I don't I don't know. Okay. But yeah, either, either way, Sir Charles Warren, the police commissioner, had it wiped from the scene, which is kind of fishy in itself. Who knows why he did that? Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> um, I've even seen. Um, I've even seen something indicating that that message was like an indication to something Masonic. Um, hmm. Yeah. Wow. So here's the, here's the next part of it. Okay. As in the case of Annie Chapman, the murderer had surgically removed a bodily organ, the kidney of Catherine Eddowes. At the inquest into her death, the authorities displayed a curious predisposition to have the medical experts state that the killer had not possessed any great anatomical skill or knowledge. At one point during the questioning, the official interrogator, the inter interrogator responded to one doctor's opinion that, in reference to the removal of the kidney, it would require a great deal of knowledge as to its position to remove it. By following up with, would not such a knowledge be likely to be possessed by one accustomed to cutting up animals? So basically what's, what's happening here is the, the doctor is, <clears throat> excuse me, the doctor is indicating that uh, great surgical knowledge had to have occurred for the, this particular murder to have occurred in this way. Um, but what it, what's going on is it looks like the official interrogator is coming along and saying, oh, well, you know, this, this, uh, this slaying could have been the result of someone who knew how to butcher animals. So oh, he's kind of like he's kind of backpedaling here. I don't like a hunter, right? I wasn't too far off. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so, so so he's backpedaling to kind of discourage the authorities, or yeah, discourage the uh, the the uh, the surgeons, the, the medical professionals who are looking at it. That's right. Okay. Wow. So the final slaying, one of the most brutal in all the annals of crime. Annal is just like a recorded history. Yeah, um, was that of Streetwalker. Mary Kelly. Kelly rented room 13 in Miller's Court, which was less than a quarter of a mile away from the site of Annie Chapman's murder on Hanbury Street. This murder, whether or not it held the ritual significance that the late Stephen Knight, author of Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, thought it did, was Jack the Ripper's macabre masterpiece. It was so vicious and so thorough a slaughter that it conjured up images of a supernatural killer. It also provided the best, if contradictory, eyewitness accounts of all the Ripper murders. A loud cry of murder was reportedly heard by Sarah Lewis shortly before 4 a.m. on Friday morning. November 9, 1888, and Elizabeth Prater heard a faint cry of murder as well. A little after 4 a.m., Witness Marianne Cox stated that Mary Kelly was quite drunk on the last night of her life and was singing for a long time until at least approximately 1 a.m., at which point Cox left Miller's Court. Pr 
traitor, a fellow prostitute who occupied room 20, was directly above Kelly's room. This is what's weird. <clears throat> so, so this other prostitute lived directly above Kelly's room. Right. Wow. Um, said she heard no sound at all from the area of Kelly's room when she returned to Miller's court at about the same time at around 1.30 a.m. Interestingly enough, she testified later that Kelly had only to move about in the room for her to hear her. In light of what transpired in room 13 that night, it strains one's credulity. That's just like believability to believe oh, oh, right, Sorry. that she wouldn't have heard a bit of moving. No. When Marianne Cox arrived back home at 3 a.m., she found everything dark and quiet. And although she sat up for the rest of the night, she heard no noise or cry of murder. Yet another witness, Carolyn Maxwell, confused matters more by swearing she saw Kelly on Friday morning, sometime between 8 and 8.30, hours after she supposedly had been killed. So this is, this is kind of one of those things. You see this tie into the, the uh, Jack the Ripper was a female, um, you know, murder, you know, theory, murder theory. And you also see this tie into the, the uh, From Hell movie where they have somebody else stands in for Mary Kelly and she's murdered and Mary Kelly flees to Ireland at the end of the movie. If you remember that, or I don't know I if it was do. Ireland or the, the, the coasts of, uh, what is it, coasts of Windsor or whatever it is. I think that's what it was, yeah. I, I remember yeah. it very vividly because the movie theater was empty at the time because it was October of 2001. And yeah, people, people were still, you know, trying to, you know, take in September 11th at the time. So that was an unfortunate release date for that film, but it was it was pretty good. Yeah, pretty decent film. Yeah. Um. So this this witness, she reported the incident in detail. Kelly told her she felt bad and had just thrown up, even pointing to the spot in the road. So there's there's all these different times that don't match up. Some is like one one thirty. Um, she's apparently murdered brutally in her room, but the, the woman upstairs doesn't hear. Um, then someone else comes along and gives like a detailed, uh, witness account of, Hey, we saw her at, I saw her saying that she was feeling sick at, at eight in the morning, which right. is just kind of all over the place. It's like an Oswald thing. You connect the, <laughs> he's right. He's in three places at once. <laughs> right. The most important witness in the Kelly case, perhaps the most important witness in the entire Jack the Ripper investigation was George Hutchinson, a laborer who lived near Mary Kelly at the Victoria Working Men's Home. Uh, a working Men's Home is just like a, it's like a home that's provided to by the factory or the company that uh, a working man works for. You know, they used to have like company towns back in the day. Oh, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> I, thought maybe was, I thought maybe it was just some place where they could actually crash if like uh, for bad weather or something. I could be totally wrong, but I, I'm pretty no, sure I that's what right. it is. Yeah, no, I, I'm stupid. <laughs> go on. No, you're not. No, you're not. Um, think outside the box, but I should go back in the box in this case. <laughs> no, feel free to interrupt any time, dude. We're oh. we're uh, they were doing this free form, and I'm reading an article, and I I, I want to discuss it with you. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> Hutchinson, this is the uh, this is the uh, the witness, the the laborer. Walked into the Commercial Street Police Station on November 12, 1888, three days after the murder, and swore out a statement. The inquest into Kelly's death had already been concluded, and Hutchinson had not testified because the authorities were unaware of him. 
Hutchinson now claimed that he'd seen Kelly, who spoke to him and asked him for some money at about 2 a.m. on the morning of November 9th. He then witnessed a man approach her from the opposite direction and tap her on the shoulder, causing her to burst out laughing. This man had, in Hutchinson's words, a kind of small parcel under his left hand with a kind of strap around it. They passed by Hutchinson as he stared at the man. He looked at me real stern. He proceeded to follow the couple and watch them long enough to hear snippets of their conversation, which consisted of her promising to make him comfortable and him offering her a red handkerchief after he'd informed her, after she'd informed him that she'd lost hers. He also witnessed the man put his arm around Kelly and kiss her. They went away into Miller's court together and Hutchinson waited for three quarters of an hour to see if they'd come out, but they didn't. So he left. He described the man as being about 34 or 35 height, five feet, six inches, complexion, pale, dark eyes and eyelashes, slight mustache curled up at each end and hair dark, very surly looking dress, long, dark coat. Wow. Yeah. Trench coat, maybe? Perhaps? Yeah, or like kind of a fashionable overcoat. Right. Dark felt hat turned down in the middle. So he's wearing a felt hat. Wore a very thick gold chain, respectable appearance. Walked very sharp, Jewish appearance. In a more extensive report that appeared in the press on November 13th, Hutchinson told of venturing into Miller's court after the couple and seeing no light in Kelly's room or hearing any noise. He also reported the clock stuck, struck three o'clock when he left the court. His even more detailed description of the man included the fact that his watch chain had a big seal with a red stone hanging from it. Of note here, and perhaps of significance, is the fact Sir Charles Warren, this is the police commissioner, had resigned the day before the last Ripper slaying. So before Mary Keller is, Kelly is killed, uh, Sir Charles Warren quits his job. Of course. Nothing, nothing what the, to see here, folks, right? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> what the authorities found in room 13 of Miller's court was horrific beyond all imagination. Quoting from the report of Dr. Thomas Bond, the whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. Those are intestines, if anyone is wondering. I used to have breasts. a I used to have a horror movie podcast called <clears throat> Casual Viscera. Oh, interesting. Back to you, my friend. <laughs> oh, no problem, no problem. So this is we're going back to Mary Kelly here. How she was uh, mutilated. The breasts were cut off. Wow. The arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face was hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissue of the neck were severe. Were severed all round to the bone. So the tissue of the neck. It's been cut to the bone. Right. Yeah, it's really brutal. This is like out of a horror movie. Yeah, from hell? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Kelly's uterus, kidneys, and one of her breasts had been placed under her head. She had basically been skinned like an animal. Her heart had been removed and was never found. It would have been hard for any serial killer to top this, quote-unquote, performance. Wow. <laughs> well, what do you make of... Do you think they they just the the real butchers whoever they were just they wanted to go over the top to make a point or just 
they were just that macabre or I mean I think it's someone who's out of control. Just out of control. I mean uh, and that's that's kind of putting it lightly. With rage and like just filled with someone filled with rage like towards prostitutes, right? Like maybe someone that got perhaps you know uh maybe a, a, a disease or you know std or something or just a, a broken heart you know yeah i mean that's that's actually led to many theories uh there's there's other residents of the east end of london have been uh, tied to the ripper murders uh, simply for uh their physical abuse of their wives or having murdered their wow. their spouses um having murdered prostitutes murdered prostitutes in other instances um, mm. I believe there was a guy who moved to, he moved to America at one point and murdered like a prostitute or two in the Midwest. And that gave rise to that theory that Jack the Ripper possibly escaped to America and actually died in, and is buried in America. Right. Right. Cause that was one too. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. So, uh, listen to this, Chris, yes. the inquest into Mary Kelly's murder was truly a farce. A loyal member of Parliament, Dr. Roderick MacDonald, replaced the too inquisitive coroner, Wayne R. Baxter, who had presided over the inquests of each earlier victim. So the, the coroner is replaced. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like all, uh, you know, conspiratorial. conspiratorial uh, yeah. Yeah. Or they, uh, yeah, it usually is that they're either replaced or they're requesting cremation within two hours or something of like the crime, you know? Yeah. yeah uh, Thomas Noguchi, who's that guy? Get him out of here. Yeah. But actually, I think he, well, he stuck to his guns, you know? He, he oh, he did. Place. He did. But that, All was, right, a, um, that was a rarity, though. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so they, they got rid of the coroner here. So yeah. McDonald's remained. McDonald is the, uh, the loyal member of parliament. McDonald remains unflappable. That means that you, you're not, you're not uh, budging on your, your stance. Right. Remained unflappable to criticism of the change in coroners by British newspapers and successfully subdued the protests of several jurors at the inquest. So, so this guy McDonald is not, you know, he, he doesn't look like he's a good guy. He's like your standard politician. He's towing the party line. Um, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's subduing like jurors, like jurors are coming up and saying, um, you, you know, they're saying whatever they're saying here and he's, you know, getting rid of them or, um, you know, trying to really maintain the official story. Right. Listen to this. George Hutchinson, the market porter, porter is someone who moves uh, goods for, for like a price. Like he paying, I want my bags moved or I want my groceries brought to my door. Oh, okay. So George, George Hutchinson, the market porter who had followed Mary Kelly. We, we, we mentioned him earlier. He was the guy who was following Mary Kelly around. Right. The market porter who followed Mary Kelly and a gentleman back to the prostitute's room off Miller's court on November 9th, the morning of her murder, was never called as a witness at the inquest. It's, oh. it's wild. In the report of Inspector Frederick Aberlein, played by Johnny Depp in the movie, Yeah. Um, it was stated that Hutchinson had been surprised to see a man so well-dressed in her company, which caused him to watch them. He can identify the man. Hutchinson's description of the man matched almost identically the individual seen by the police constable, William Smith, just prior to the murder of Elizabeth Stride, and the man Joseph Lond saw moments before Catherine Eddowes was slain. 
So there's, there's, a, there's a little bit more to this article, but, um, but what you're going to hear here is all the witness testimony. It, it ends up being fairly consistent. Um, the, the man involved in the murders consistently is about five feet, seven inches, five feet, eight inches. Um, so it's not like your, your regular, uh, school shooter where literally there's descriptions of like 10 different people for one lone nut, right? This is right. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, this, this is a different kind of, this is kind of like a different kind of event in some ways. I mean, it's, it's similar in some respects to what you're saying, but it's it's kind of a different kind There's of shenanigans going on, regardless. Just based on the what you're read, what you're reading to us. I mean, yeah. Bottom line is, that there's like a consistent description of this guy that the witnesses are are picking up on. Yeah. So um, you're doing great. This is fascinating. Seriously. Oh yeah, it is. It, it it's this is a, a dense piece of Very uh, writing good. here. Hats Very off good. to hats off to Mr. Donald Jeffries. By the way, <laughs> yeah, my, hair, my hairline is horrible. So, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, Mr. Jeffries, thank you. Uh, I hope you do more articles like this. Actually, of other stuff that we don't get to hear you talk about. Yeah, when you know we end up writing, you know, helping him research uh, hidden history of the world. Yeah, at some point. <laughs> yeah, or hidden, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Where was I? Um, okay, so here he says so. Oh, they were consistent. Yeah, in the they're consistent. So, so all three witnesses had described a man in his late twenties or early thirty, about five feet seven or eight inches tall, with a brown mustache. Wow. <clears throat> so you, you're going to see where this is going, but um, yeah, there was a lot of speculation in this case. Yeah, but it's not it's not quite as all over the place as people think it is. Right. So, and some get really wild. Like Lewis Carroll gets involved. Lewis Carroll, uh, Helena Blavatsky, according to Aleister Crowley, is is wow. anyway. I'm that, that's for another episode, though. No, I'm I'm saying that's a teaser. Yeah, just, uh, that and the I. This is the ultimate teaser right here, and maybe Mr. Jeffries can explain it to us. Why are the Jack the Ripper files still classified to this day? Oh, we're going to get into that. That's some of the, like you, you read the, uh, if you dig up any of the, the articles on that, like they're from just like a few years ago. I think there was one by ABC where was um, one even last month. Is that right? Right. There, there was one that I read where the, this guy comes out from Scotland Yard or the, the, the Metropolitan yeah, Police. And yep. he's like, he, he's saying like, oh yeah, well the reason that we're not releasing them is because um, the, it might it might have a chilling effect on people wanting to come forward with evidence, you know, from now on, and they're not going to want to report crimes as a result. If we who are they protecting? Um, that's over what? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's the, the biggest nonsense. Uh, uh, I've heard excuse. some shit sandwiches, and uh, that's a big shit sandwich, folks. <laughs> yeah, but and then it was like, oh well, you know, there's going to be retribution against the uh, the witnesses' families if. Uh, you know, this is a case from 1888. This isn't like a case from, you know, 19, 1988, yeah, you know. Yeah, 1999 or something. Yeah. 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 It's, you Unless know. it's Henry Kissinger, because we know he has that life extension technology, so maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Right, whatever. Okay, sorry, here we go, But sir. Before I continue, Chris, um, we are ne very nearing an hour at this point. Are we going to be good to continue, or... 
Uh, shall we split it off here and then continue in the next episode? Well, I will leave it up to you, my friend. Uh, do we have a count of how many more pages? Because maybe we can finish the article with the author himself. I'm about halfway through the article, to be honest with you. Okay. And what page are we on? Because I have. We're on page only... six. We're on page yeah. six of 11. So. Okay. Yeah. Oh, page six of 11. We're basically right at the halfway point there. Okay. Why don't I, why don't I wrap up page six and then yeah. we'll call it a night. And even if we have to do another episode where we continue reading, we yeah, will do no, that. We, yeah. We'll do a, we'll do a thing where we do a thing or two about a thing or two. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure it cool. out. Cool. We'll discuss it off air. Yeah. Here we go. Here so, we go. Author Frank Spearling was permitted to view both the Metropolitan Police file and Home Office file on the Ripper case. So anybody who's curious, Home Office file, the Home Office is uh, is my understanding of it anyway. It's in Great Britain. You have different uh, uh, bureaus or departments underneath, uh, underneath I guess, like the, the royalty or underneath like the, the, royal, the main government, the royal government there. I'm not and sure. So, so I don't want to speak on it. I'm not sure. Yeah, you have the you have the Metropolitan Police, and then you have the Home Office, and the Home Office also investigates cases, but they're okay. under the uh, the the main government of Britain as a as a country. Okay. All right. Yeah. I learned something. So. New. Yeah. So this guy Frank Spearling discovered that the first 227 folders of the Home Office file were either missing or had been destroyed. Yeah. The Metropolitan Police file consisted of three packets of loose sheets of paper in brown wrapped folders bound with string. Two of the three folders were almost totally insignificant, containing numerous letters from London citizen offering investigative advice, revealing potential suspects, etc. The the third folder speaks volumes for what was actually preserved of the official investigation. Spearling found that it contained... It consisted of several smaller folders with the individual victims' names on top. They contained almost nothing except published newspaper accounts of the murders. That's pretty ridiculous. The home office file contained the investigative report of Inspector Frederick Aberlein, again, Johnny Depp, um, which detailed his intent to utilize witness George Hutchinson, who could identify the man in an effort to locate the Ripper. So he's trying to he's trying to utilize the guy who's who actually found Mary Kelly's body. Right. right. So he's like, hey, this this guy was not called forth at the inquest for whatever reason. So right. now right. I'm going to call him forth because he's our best witness. Right. 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 Why do you think that there was shenanigans with the files? Personally? Oh, well, we I will read on and find okay. out, my friend. All right. All right. Here we go. <laughs> City here. <laughs> yes. Um, Hutchinson's description of a suspect with dark hair about five feet, eight inches tall, a pale complexion, and a slight mustache. Listen to this. Curled up at each end, fit. Prince Albert Victor, the oh. Duke of Clarence. You're Prince Eldest... Albert to the can. That Prince Albert? Yeah, that is, it's that Prince Albert, my friend. Well, everything's connected, man. That's <laughs> a, that was a, uh, you know, old, uh, old, uh, before yeah, the, the yeah. jerky boys, you had yeah, the, like, is ben, Prince Albert in a can. Or even with Mo, <laughs> Mo in uh, is, ben, is, 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 your, is your refrigerator running, you know? Ben, yeah. Is, you uh, better go get it. Over here? Yeah. <laughs> I'll kill you. Um, yeah, yeah. 
So Hutchinson's description of a suspect with dark hair, about five feet, eight inches tall, a pale complexion, and a slight mustache curled up at each end fit Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence, eldest child of the Prince and Princess of Wales and grandson of Queen Victoria quite nicely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in my opinion, and I'm sure there's people who are Jack the Ripper experts is this going to probably listening to this show that are going to say, no, it was this Polish Jewish guy. Yeah. Uh, it seems like, it seems like that's all a, like a, a red herring basically. And you got this guy who's the, he's the, uh, he's the prince. He's well, the, my theory is going to be Henry Kissinger and I'm not going to budge. <laughs> what is he like uh, 190 now? Yeah. He's like a thousand eating McDonald's. It's <laughs> he, more than me. <laughs> all right. I, I so, guess. You're there is no well here's the other thing that you find in this in the description of this guy he's a tall skinny pale pale-faced guy so if you find a lot of these royalty their complexion you know they didn't work out in the sun a lot they of were very very fair-skinned incest i'm not even yep. joking it's just yep. to keep the bloodline pure i believe right yeah and i believe and somebody maybe wants to do research on this for me but i believe there's certain <laughs> There's certain uh, not not diseases, but like genetic uh, 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 conditions that occur yeah. uh, only in those like higher classes of people because of the inbreeding over the thousands of years. Is it, wow, thousands of years. Yeah, ventiligo. Like, that like I know I'm butchering that name, but something like that, like a skin disease, possibly like that makes their skin like a, a paler shade it doesn't I'm, I'm not entirely sure but i know i know uh like the, these aren't guys out there working in the coal mines these aren't like guys you know right. in the factories uh yeah. these aren't like your uh they're not working the pizza hut buffet at all oh absolutely not yeah. absolutely not Great sticks no nothing okay so there is no existing account of Aberlin's attempts through Hutchinson to locate and identify this individual. And as noted, this most important witness in the Mary Kelly case was not called to testify at her inquest. There were other eyewitness descriptions of men seen with the various victims in their final hours. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Long, who was the last person to see Annie Chapman alive, testified that she saw the victim talking to a man on the pavement outside 29 Hanbury Street, where her body would be found in the backyard of that address. At most, half an hour later, at around 6 o'clock in the morning, the witness was certain that she saw them at 5.30 a.m. because the brewer's clock had just struck that time as she passed them. The brewer's clock is just like you got a clock on your, your brewer's factory. Yeah. <clears throat> she didn't see the man's face, but reported him to be dark and wearing a deerstalker hat. He looked like a foreigner and possessed a shabby, genteel appearance. A shabby, a genteel is just like kind of gentlemanly or refined in appearance. Something that would not ever describe me. Or me. No. Because no. He's rewind. Anyway, <laughs> you're great. <laughs> Edit that out later. Um, Live, buddy. Long could hear them... <laughs> Speaking in fond tones and overheard the man say, will you? As well as Chapman's reply, yes. At the Elizabeth Stride inquest, will witness William Marshall testified that he'd seen Stride talking to a man at approximately a quarter of 12 on the night of her murder. He said the man was wearing a round cap with a small peak on it, something like what a sailor would wear. Wow. 
He also describes him as about five foot six inches in height and rather stout. That's just kind of strongly built. Yeah, he was was decently dressed, and I would say he worked at some light business and had more the appearance of a clerk than anything else. Clerks. (laughs) Yeah, clerks. (laughs) For you Kevin Smith fans out there. Nice Um, to meet you today, 37. (laughs) He witnessed the man, whom he didn't believe to have any whiskers, kissing the victim and heard him say, you would say anything but your prayers. That's like prostitute talk. He also uh, stated that the man was... Oh, my God. Yeah, he also stated that the man was mild-speaking and appeared to be an educated man. Another witness, James Brown, not the uh, the famous... <laughs> <Brown. Living in America. laughs> they think he was murdered, too. We'll get into that down the line. Anyway, sorry, go on. So another witness, James Brown, claimed to have seen the, car, the couple and reported, as I passed them, I heard the woman say, no, not tonight, some other night. I should say the man was about five feet, seven inches in height. Police constable, that's another name for a police officer, William Smith, William Smith described the man he saw that night with stride in a very similar description. He was about five feet, seven inches, as near as I could say, had on a hard felt deerstalker hat. I could not see much of the face of the man except that he had no whiskers. Smith also declared the man had a respectable appearance. Stride's body was found within 100 yards of the spot where these three witnesses saw her standing within an hour and a half later. So again, we're getting, just to summarize this, we're getting like a consistent description of this man being kind of pale-faced. Some people are are mentioning facial hair, some aren't. Yeah, he's kind of like the size of Tom Cruise, you know, with the five foot seven, you know. Yeah, not... Yeah, he's not he's not a he's not a big guy, but he's yeah. probably strongly built, but he looks like he would do some sort of clerical work. Right. Clerks. Yeah. So exactly. Smith's regular beat took him through Burner Street every half an hour or so. Wow. Smith testified Don't that the man me. he'd seen was about twenty eight years old, of dark complexion with a little dark mustache and was holding a parcel about 18 inches long, wrapped in newspaper in one hand. All right, Chris. Well, um, I am going to continue. When you say dark complected, I'm thinking umbrella man's buddy. And that has no bearing on this case at all. And you can count on me for that. Anyway, this has been great. And we're going to pick this up next week with, our awesome friend, author, researcher, scholar, and part-time musician back in the day. And uh, we're going to put out his album at some point, Mr. Donald Jeffries and Mr. Peter Sikosh. Where can people find you if you want to be found? Because I, frankly, do not want to be found. Peter Sikosh Art. That's one word. Um, How can they support you? At the same, same place? Same place. You're like, I'm about to give my email out, you jerk. Sorry. And email is just my first name and last name at gmail.com. And how do you spell that? Just Oh, it's on the screen. Yes. It's on the screen. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is, will be a podcast, too. Peter Seacott. So, yes, for the audience, to be continued. C-O-S-H. No, because this will be audio as well in certain places. That's right. All, All right. So, we're on, we're on page 7 of 11. Bookmark it, Chris. We're going to pick 11. this up. 
7-Eleven with Mr. Donald Jeffries, Mr. Peter Sikosh, Mr. Cirque Savarg right here. Uh, and you know what? This has been great. And I've been looking forward to this seriously from the bottom of whatever heart I have left. I, <laughs> I mean this wholeheartedly. Wholehearted. All right. Now I'm just... See you next week, folks. Oh, that's just, that's not, okay, that's not the outro. Oh, okay, here we go. All right, uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to end the broadcast with right here. This is a little, uh, okay, uh, here we go, folks. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do